Happy New Year, listeners. I am so excited about this new decade. At the risk of being totally annoying with this pun, I'd like to say that I'm feeling really good about this new chapter in my life, as well as in the podcast. As you know, if you're a longtime listener of the show, we typically feature women as guests, but by popular demand, I'm bringing Manuary back for a second round. It's going to be a great month of book talk. The first book up for discussion in 2020 is Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which was published in 1964. It is, of course, the story of Charlie Bucket, a little boy who loves chocolate but rarely gets to eat it because of his family's financial struggles. With the help of a golden ticket, he wins a contest organized by the mysterious candy maker Willy Wonka, who invites Charlie and the other kid winners on a tour of his factory. Antics ensue, children are sent down chocolate rivers and turned into giant blueberries, and in the end, Charlie proves himself so virtuous that he is actually gifted the factory. It's all also fun, right? Well, kind of. As you'll hear in this episode, there are actually bigger questions to explore here, and some of them are not so fun. On episode 78 of SSR, my guests and I take a deep dive into the publishing history of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Spoiler alert, some of it's pretty problematic. We talk about the portrayal of Oompa Loompas in the book and what it says about race and the white savior complex. We discuss mixed messages about food and weight and the heavy-handed fat shaming that goes on. We chat about the importance of stories from multiple perspectives and the difficulties of reading a book when you already know that there are problems lurking around every corner. We also wonder about Willy Wonka's backstory. Where did he come from and why is Grandpa Joe so obsessed with him? Do Violet Beauregard's gum-chewing aspirations make her a feminist role model? Did Charlie's peers deserve the punishments they got in Wonka's factory? What would their vices be in a version of the book written today? And finally, is Charlie Bucket too perfect? Today's guest is one of our most requested for Manuary. It's Hunter from Shelf by Shelf. Hunter can be found on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Shelf by Shelf. Check out www.shelfbyshelf.com for book reviews, book discussion, and personal updates. Hunter is from South Carolina, raised by his granny, and says that the best way to describe his upbringing is as a blend of the documentary Grey Gardens and Stephen King's Carrie, with a little bit of Ellen Hopkins' YA thrown in. Hunter currently lives with his husband and their dog in North Florida. Thanks so much to you, Hunter, for helping me kick off a new year of SSR with a conversation that's both fun and meaningful. If you want to be part of another exciting year of the podcast, be sure you're following us on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. If you're loving this episode, please don't hesitate to take a screenshot and share it on your Instagram story. This is a great way to help spread the word about the show. I want to get the podcast out there to an even bigger audience in 2020, and I really appreciate you helping me do that. You can also spread the word by telling your non-social media friends about the pod, by leaving five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes, and by rocking SSR merch. Bookmarks, t-shirts, and tote bags are available for purchase at www.ssrpodcast.com shop. Take your support for SSR to another level this year by becoming a Patreon sponsor. Patreon allows you to contribute a few dollars per month, as little as a dollar actually, to the production of this one-woman show, and in return you'll receive exclusive rewards. I offer everything from monthly newsletters and input on book selection to merch and bonus episodes. Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support for all the details. Shout out to all of the Patreon patrons listening to this episode. I appreciate you. I also appreciate my friends at Libro FM and the opportunity to continue working with them in 2020. One of my reading goals last year was to read more audiobooks. I achieved that goal thanks to Libra FM because I felt really good about being able to support indie booksellers while I listened. Libra FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libra FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. 
but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted to cash in on the discount. Okay, listeners, time to kick off 2020. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Hunter. Welcome to SSR. Hi. We also have to wish a big Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Everyone, this is our first episode of 2020. It's our first episode of Manuary. Hunter, this is like a really exciting and fun episode. I'm excited. Well, also, I feel like 2020, like hopefully that means it'll be like a clear-eyed year. Like we'll have like a good vision for what's to come. I don't know. I'm hoping that. I mean, we're recording in 2019, full disclosure, and it's mid-October. So I feel like I have a little time to get my feet under me with that, but I have high hopes for 2020, and hopefully now that we're in it in real time as listeners are hearing this, hopefully we're all feeling good about the new year. Yeah. And I'm feeling good about the book we're talking about today. We are talking about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which we have been getting requests to discuss since the show started. I'm thrilled that we're talking about it today. Hunter, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your history with this book and maybe why you chose it for your SSR book discussion. First of all, I did not realize all of the controversy around the book and how do you pronounce his last name? Doll. Doll. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I like, okay. I'm Complicated like man. Complicated yeah. man. <laughs> and I did not realize any of this until probably a couple months ago I started to find out, but I just like, I guess I just wasn't emotionally ready to like figure it out. But I was like, well, let me like look a little bit more into this before we have a discussion. And then I was just like, oh, okay. But I... I had watched, obviously, the was the first movie in the 70s. Yeah, 1971 was the, like, okay. that's the one that I feel like most people know and mostly love. Yeah, so I, that's what I was familiar with when I was growing up. But then it, when I was in, like, third or fourth grade, I read, um, I read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And then I was very surprised with all the differences. And then I read Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. And then I was really oddly obsessed with the Tim Burton movie. Really? Yeah, I don't know why. I just loved it so deeply. And I bought like the two disc like DVD. I was like, and, and I, oh, and also last little thing I, uh, they used to do like a, the Willy, they used to have like the Willy Wonka chocolate bars too with the rest of the candy. Mm-hmm. And they had like a, they had like a golden ticket contest for something, um, right before the new movie was released. And I literally gained about 15 pounds. Little chunky me was like eating chocolate bars. And my granny was like, okay, well, do you want dinner? And I said, no, I have to get the the ticket. And so, yeah, so I have like a little history with this. You're a little bit of like a Wonka stan for a bit there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel like you almost like lived the experience of like eating all those chocolate bars. You've been in in it in a way that maybe most people haven't. For sure. I think so. Well, and also, like, I grew up in, like, a little dinky trailer park with my granny and her mom. Okay. 
And so I feel like I kind of had like, like not as bad as Charlie Bucket, but I feel like I had like a little bit of those vibes. But we also afforded more chocolate bars than he did. So it's fine. So he spoke to you a little bit, sounds like. Yeah. So I feel like the movie, the 1971 movie, was like a huge part of my childhood. My dad loved that movie. What I learned in researching was that that movie actually kind of tanked at the box office. Yeah. It's only in the last like 20 or 30 years since people have actually been able to buy it and bring it home and then obviously watch it on TV. Like I feel like it's on free form all the time. Um, It's only in that period that the movie has gotten so popular, but it was actually sort of considered a failure when it came out. I thought that it was like the best movie in the world because my dad thought it was the best movie in the world. And it was a movie that he showed us all the time when we were growing up. And I think that I read the book at one point. I think my dad actually may have read it to me. I have this weird memory of him like talking about the toothpaste factory thing. Like having read the book again recently, I sort of remembered this moment of him like sharing that part of the book out loud where Charlie's dad, Mr. Bucket, actually like goes to work every day at the toothpaste factory and his job is to screw the lids onto the toothpaste, which is such a roll doll detail. And I do love that kind of stuff about his books. Um, so I think my dad read it out loud to me. I may have read it again by myself because I did love a lot of the other roll doll books. So I can I can picture myself like coming back to this maybe one one or two other times. And then I did read Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, but I was definitely more attached to the movie than I was to the books. I went to see the 2005 Tim Burton movie and I remember being really disappointed by it. I That's the comment. Yeah. Every time I talk to people about it, they're always like, why did you like that? And I guess I think, you know what I think it is? I think honestly, it is the smallest thing, but I think it's that pink boat. Mm-hmm. I I w- I'm obsessed with the color pink and I'm blonde. So I feel like a Barbie sometimes. And I think that's for sure. I think that it's probably just the boat. There's no good reason for why I liked it. I mean, the production value of it is super cool. And I remember like being really excited to see Johnny Depp as Willy Wonka. That's so problematic in so many ways. I know, but at the time, like 14, 15 year old me who loved Pirates of the Caribbean couldn't mm-hmm. wait to see him as Willy Wonka. And I remember it being this like big deal that my family went to see the movie and we were like, oh, that was kind of weird. Like, how do we process this? Just because it was so different than I think like our pre death reference point for Willy Wonka. So yeah, this book has had quite a journey and I learned so much more about it preparing to talk to you today. I'd love to know, like, what were your first impressions getting back into the world? I know you mentioned to me that you sort of accidentally read it in one sitting. Tell me more about that experience. So <laughs> I was at work and I was, it was on my lunch break, but I was like, well, I was like, I'll, I'll just sit and read it at my desk while I'm eating broccoli. I, I guess that I just haven't read a lot of children's books recently anyway. And so as I was reading it, I was like, oh, wow. And I kept, and I think also just remembering all these details and also realizing how much my mind thought I remembered about the book that was actually memories of the movies. Mm -hmm. Same. Yeah. And so I think I just got so deeply invested in like trying to like untangle my memories of it that I just couldn't put it down. And then all of a sudden my boss came and I was so rude and so unprofessional. I just held up my hand and said, hold on. And he just circled back and I was done. But yeah, it was, I just couldn't put it down. And I, and I do think that his books in general are very readable. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. We've read for the show, James and the Giant Peach and Matilda. I would say that Matilda was maybe the most readable of the three that I've reread. I had trouble getting through James and the Giant Peach, although that wasn't one of my faves when I was a kid either. And then Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for me fell somewhere in the middle. It wasn't at all what I expected it would be. And I think we'll get more into why, because I think maybe we both have 
that experience to share. Um, but for some reason I found myself like stopping and starting a lot while I was reading through it. And it felt a little disjointed to me. Like it almost feels like two books. Mm-hmm. It's pretty short. It's like 150 ish pages. Um, and the first half is this sort of like sad story about Charlie and his family. And then the second half is this wacky trip through the chocolate factory where honestly, Charlie isn't really present at all. And that surprised me. And that is sort of one thing that I was missing a little bit. Like as readers were experiencing all these crazy things with the other kids and we're learning a little bit more about Willy Wonka but you're not really getting Charlie's reactions to any of that and I think that's what's so great about the movie the 1971 movie is like you're seeing all of this through Charlie's eyes and of course through Grandpa Joe's eyes and Grandpa Joe is like the star (laughs) and I missed that in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah, and I, I, that's another thing too, is that I remember, I kept thinking in my head that Grandpa Joe was like much more invested in the story because in the, in the 2000, yeah, in the 2005 version, I really feel like they gave him even more backstory connection in my, I don't know, maybe that's just in my head, but like, but I, I kept thinking he was, had so much more to do with like Wonka's factory and everything because of like, I was like, oh yeah, I was like, cause I remember there's like a scene where Johnny Depp and the guy who plays Grandpa Joe, they're interacting in the candy shop. And so, yeah, so then whenever I was reading it, I was like, man, I thought he had so much more to do. I don't know. Yeah, I think generally what I read and what I vaguely remember from seeing the Tim Burton movie literally one time (laughs) is that Tim Burton sort of like imparted a lot of extra backstory on a lot of the characters because he was obsessed with this book. um, And so he probably had like years of imagined thoughts about where all the characters came from. Um, And we don't get that as much in this book and certainly not in the 1971 movie. And I was sort of like mystified by the fact that Grandpa Joe was like so obsessed with Willy Wonka in this book. And I wish that I'd had a little bit of a backstory with him because I kept writing notes in the margins of like, why are you so obsessed with Willy Wonka? And like, he was so defensive of him. So listeners, if you haven't read this book in a while, and I don't think we need a lot of intro on what's going on in the beginning because it's sort of like out there in pop culture now but we meet Charlie Bucket he lives with his parents and the four grandparents all sleep and lay and live in a bed together um, there's Grandpa Joe and, Gra- and Grandma Josephine and Grandpa George and Grandma Georgina which is a mouthful and that was not easy to roll off the tongue and they are really struggling like they don't have a lot of money they're hungry all the time noble it's like very noble actually that his parents are taking care of all four grandparents um and they're struggling like it's really hard for them to get by and there's this glimmer of hope that happens when there's news that Willy Wonka who's this mysterious candy maker um whose factory happens to be in the town where Charlie lives he's creating this contest where there's five golden tickets floating around in his candy bars and the five kids who find them I guess we're to assume that only kids would find them which is like just a funny factoid that you wouldn't notice as a kid reading it but I'm like what if five adults had found them and they're like trying to imagine what it would be like if Charlie got the golden ticket and sort of the other members of the family are like whatever I mean it would be cool but they sort of like aren't as excited as Grandpa Joe and anytime anybody even like comes close to saying even a neutral word about Willy Wonka Grandpa Joe is like how dare you like he's not crazy he's amazing he's so clever and I was a little weirded out by that what did you think no well that's it's so funny because at one point one of the grandmas like is a little bit snippy about it yeah about Willy Wonka and I, and I remember seeing I was like man I was like he's really defensive and I kept thinking back to Tim Burton's version is that I kept thinking oh well, maybe the backstory comes in later I don't know and so I just kept th- like thinking in my head, well, oh yeah, they know each other from like working in the factory together. Yeah. And I was like, no, no. I was like, this is not the, mi-. okay. Yeah. I mean, I understood the part where like the family as a whole sort of fetishized the chocolate and the candy. Yeah. And there's this 
really like beautiful detail about how Charlie only gets to eat one chocolate bar a year and he gets it as a gift on his birthday from his family and he like doesn't even open it for a few days like he leaves it in his room and kind of looks at it and then every day he eats a tiny bite and makes it last like a month or two which I think is a great detail for kids who maybe just need a little bit of perspective on like how great it is to be able to like just go buy a candy bar whenever you want I mean this is a kid who barely gets any treats ever and so one candy bar a year is all that he can enjoy so it makes sense to me that like the product um, would sort of be fetishized in this family and it obviously symbolizes so much to them but I didn't quite understand the fascination with Willy Wonka I was wondering if we were going to get a backstory and so I kind of created this fantasy in my head where like Maybe Willy Wonka started from really humble beginnings. And I was thinking about that throughout the book because I did have so many questions about Willy Wonka at every turn. And I kept trying to like explain it away by being like, oh, maybe this is because he too grew up poor. And maybe that's why he sympathizes with Charlie. And maybe that's why he wants to give these kids opportunities. And I guess that kind of informs the weird obsession that Grandpa Joe has with him because maybe he knows and he like, I don't know, right. admires him. It, it was a little bit strange to me though well it's funny because okay so when i think about the whole like he's like i mean willy wonka kind of seems like a savior in some ways Mm -hmm. of like this but it's kind of awkward because you think about like his whole thing with the oompa loompas and there's obviously like a lot of like you know issues there but i also read in the new york times a while back that he'd originally intended for charlie to be black yeah, let's talk about the controversy, shall we? What do you think? I think so. Okay, I'm- let's do it. So here's what I found. You are right, my friend. Uh, Charlie was originally black. And apparently Roald Dahl felt very passionate about that. And he really wanted to feature a black character in one of his books. And as you said, he's this controversial guy. Um, in particular, he's noted for being an anti-Semite. And that I actually was um, dissuaded heavily by reading Roald Dahl by my grandmother when I was growing up. And she would get very angry when I would read all of his books. And I was like, whatever, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a complicated guy. And he wrote this book with Charlie as the black main character. And his agent told him he should change it because a black character would not appeal to as many kids, which, you know, like, it's it's so maddening to know that, unfortunately, that conversation went on for so long, and it's only now that we're getting those own voices stories and even, like, some basic diversity in books. Mm-hmm. But he changed it. Charlie, obviously, is a white boy. But the story of that original draft was that all of the other kids were white. Um, Charlie was the only black kid. And in one scene, I think, toward the end of the book, they wander into this room where there's, like, giant chocolate molds and one of the molds is shaped like a kid like a boy and Wonka says it's okay for Charlie to like go stand in the mold and he does and then Wonka gets distracted um, and so while Charlie's in the mold like the chocolate gets poured on him and he is like turned into a piece of chocolate which is then taken home to Wonka's family because in this version he actually has kids and a wife um, and then Charlie sort of like is presented as part of an Easter basket to Wonka's son and the prize for him like having weathered that weird storm is that he actually gets to have this like chocolate store this candy store named after him in the city center that's very weird but I found sort of an interesting Q&A um, in the New York Times I don't know if this is what you saw too but it was a Q&A with the associate professor of English at the University of South Carolina her name's Katherine Kaiser and she's talking about the context of this um, and this is like a really long 
quote, but I'm going to share it because I think it offers maybe some helpful context. She says, as far as this version goes, I think it is a really powerful racial allegory that might seem very surprising coming from Dahl. I think the mold in the shape of a chocolate boy is a metaphor for racial stereotype. In the early 20th century, chocolate marketing in both the U.S. and England was very tied up in imperialistic fantasies and in connecting brown skin with brown chocolate. So I think it's neat that in this mid-century moment, Dahl has this black boy get stuck inside a mold that fits him perfectly. He emphasizes that. Everything about the molds fits Charlie, except once the chocolate inside the mold hardens, it's uncomfortable. So what better symbol of what it's like to be turned into a racial stereotype than a black boy who gets stuck inside a life-size chocolate mold and can't be seen or heard through this chocolate coating? Ugh. Right? Phew. I know. It's crazy. Yeah, I'm like literally... Uh, I'm going to give you a minute to take it in. No, I need a minute. I'm like, that, that's a lot. Like... Mm-hmm. But, you know, like, it takes me forever to get stuff anyway. So, like, I'm glad that I had something to, like, kind of, like, really, I don't know, help me process that. But, like, whew. Well, because it's weird because, you know, we know these things about Dahl that he was seemingly not the most sympathetic, empathetic figure. And then we see that he included Charlie originally as a black character. And you're like, okay, what's the depiction like? Like, what kind of representation is he actually putting out there? And then you read this sort of expertise and it's like, oh, maybe he actually did have good intentions. But then there's this kind of screwed up thing that we haven't talked about yet with the Oompa Loompas, where in the original version and the one that existed for almost a decade, the Oompa Loompas are described as, quote, African pygmies, mm-hmm. um, which understandably raised some eyebrows, particularly from the NAACP who um, boycotted the movie when it came out in 1971. And they had a lot to say in particular about how, like, the depiction of the Oompa Loompas being sent to the Wonka factory really had some parallels with the slave trade. And so Dahl was actually like genuinely upset, it seems, by that. And he felt badly about it. Um, and so he edited it. And obviously, like, this version is different. Um, and the professor that this Q&A features um, had some things to say about that. She said, I think this arc, from what I find to be a fairly anti-racist novel to the novel that has been rightly criticized for its racist and imperialist politics, what it really shows is Dahl's ambivalence. So it just kind of seems like he didn't quite get it. Yeah, that's... But you know, I feel like that isn't that... But I think this is one of the reasons why I think we talk so much about why own voices like stories are so important. Mm -hmm. Like, because sometimes people don't get it even with like good intentions yeah which it seems like he might have had good intentions in, in some aspects but not not in others but yeah i think i know it's, it's yeah. complicated but the fun fact fun fact that i learned um that is sort of part of this whole story is that the reason that the first movie was called willy wonka and the chocolate factory and not charlie and the chocolate factory which is of course the name of the book is that the NAACP didn't they were so upset about this African pygmies reference in the book, which was the edition that was still out there when the movie came out, that they like basically lobbied for the film company to be like, we don't want the movie to encourage more people to buy this book. So that's why they changed the title of it. And I'd always wondered that. I didn't know why yeah. there were, they were two different titles. And I've always kind of like switched them in and out. But there's a very real reason that they're different. That is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Fun, the things you learn, uh, you know, you just never know what's out there. It's so funny because what it, um, cause I bought this is like semi-related, but I didn't know anything about the controversy around some of the stuff with Little House on the Prairie. Mm. And my mother-in-law was obsessed with those books growing up and I wanted to love them so bad. And then I got all of this like background history on it. And I just was like, I had to like, I couldn't pick them up right away. Cause I was like, I can't do it while thinking about this controversy in my head. That's, and I feel like, I don't know. And I think that knowing the controversy going the controversies going into reading this Charlie and the chocolate factory, I think it really, it made me skeptical right away. Whereas I don't know if I'd have picked up on some of the greater issues with my 
personal lens, I don't know if I would have been able to pick up on it as well. If yeah, I, had. I think that's true. I didn't know all these details going into reading Charlie and the Chocolate Factory again, but I did know, um, or I could anticipate at least the Little House on the Prairie stuff before I reread that for the podcast, which was a while ago now, and I can link that episode in the show notes, but it was hard for me to enjoy it. And I was sad because I, like so many people, really enjoyed Little House on the Prairie when I was a kid, and I just didn't know. You don't know what you don't know, especially when you're a kid, and that's part of why I want to have these conversations because like, it's nice to at least have our eyes open to the books that are still on the shelves and that haven't necessarily been changed. And that's another thing too, is that, you know, I wonder if, if teachers are having these kind of conversations at all in their classrooms because no one did have those. And, and I know that, I know that that was like, I think I, I think I read it in 2000, 2001, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I know that like people, I think that even in the past 20 years, people have just become way more socially conscious, but I did, I, no one did have conversations like that with me. And I, and and clearly if they knew that there was controversy there anyway, I just wonder why they never felt the need to address that then. And I wonder if they do feel that need now. I don't know how often this book is read in schools, but it would be interesting to find out. I recently did an episode about To Kill a Mockingbird, and that was a real eye opener in terms of like the conversations that teachers are having in schools and like there are so many teachers that feel strongly about that book on both ends of the spectrum and I grew up in a predominantly white community and was taught that book from a white perspective and I loved that book when I was growing up and I think there are still a lot of things to love about it as like a literary work but obviously like doing the research that I did for the show I learned so much more about why it's problematic and why it's much more complicated to have it in schools than I ever knew that it was. And it, what's interesting is that you know when you think about To Kill a Mockingbird at least there's like a comp title that is an own voices you know you could you could pick up something like Sing and Buried Sing or Nickel Boys and get another perspective of another story that I don't know could resonate in a different way but I don't think there's a comp title that I can think of for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory that people could probably which I think just says like how much that those kind of stories are needed mm-hmm because, because I mean, you can't say like, oh, well, I don't know. You just can't. I, hmm. Well, it's interesting because I feel like To Kill a Mockingbird is known as this book that's about race. And so I think yeah. it's much easier to be like, oh, let me point to these other books that offer a counterpoint from a different perspective. Whereas Charlie and the Chocolate Factory at face value is just this sort of like fun romp through a candy factory. And it's silly and zany and wacky and all things roll doll. But especially when you put it in the context of like the publishing history of this book and maybe like thinking about the way that Roald Dahl originally intended it to appear, it would be pretty cool if there was a book with a similar idea or like some similar messages or lessons and like somewhat of a similar plot that offered characters that were coming from a different place and a different perspective. I think a lot about books that are in conversations with each other and that want to like I just kind of like comment on on certain issues or whatever. And I think that I would love, yeah, I would love to see more books in conversation with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and addressing some of these issues in a way that was still like where adults could pick it up, but like children could still enjoy it without like it not not being over their heads. I guess. Mm-hmm. But then again, you know, I don't think that I don't think people think as much about having books in conversation when it comes to children's literature. And especially digging back into books like this one, which was written in 1964. Um, And it's unfortunate because even though this book was written in 1964, kids are still reading it. So that doesn't mean that there's like an excuse not to have a book in conversation with it. So I think your point is well taken. Before we stop talking about race in this book, I have one more quote from that Q&A that I wanted to share and the professor's sort of perspective on like what we're left with 
when we remove Charlie as a black character, she said, it ends up being about the virtuous white factory boy. Isn't that where we've ended up now as a society? We hear so much about the virtuous white workers, and it often seems to be taking black people out of the story. Charlie and the Oompa Loompas are very similar, both starving. All the other children are bad consumers because they eat without pleasure. And this Q&A was from 2017. So um, this is a commentary on like really where we are right now, um, this image of like the quote unquote virtuous white factory worker. And I thought that that was like a really interesting thought about who this book is sort of glorifying and just this idea of like these white factory workers as inherently virtuous more so than these like wealthy people who are able to be gluttonous and obviously like more so than the black characters who have been totally removed from the story so it's been totally whitewashed except for the Oompa Loompas and that's its own complicated thing which I think we should start talking about soon no yeah which and that's it's so funny to me that like that no one because I read a lot I read a lot of people's reviews on Goodreads or in just different I was trying to find different people's like reviews just because I wanted to see if anyone would bring it up and a lot of people n- didn't address the Oompa Loompa controversy in their reviews which I just thought was really strange even in the new iteration since Roald Dahl supposedly willingly made the edits and you know wrote out all of the references to Africa even this version made me feel icky. And I'm not sure why. And I kept saying to my husband, like, I, I don't know if I'm just so sensitive because obviously, like, the references that are being made to these new Oompa Loompas, like, there's nothing specific about them. There's no reference to a particular country or a particular culture. But there's something about it that just made me feel icky. And I think in the movie, they are just silly. Like, they're these bright orange, weird-looking non-humans that are, like, singing and... There's not really anything to hang your hat on in terms of like where they came from or what their needs are or like how their lives have changed because they've come to work for Willy Wonka. In the book, you do get some backstory where Willy Wonka went to like Loompa Land, I think, and he meets these people that are apparently in need. And he's like, Well, if you come with me and you work at my factory, like I'll take care of you. And conveniently, the Loompa Land people or Oompa Loompas are obsessed with the cacao bean. And so he's like, Oh, well, do I have a job for you? You can live on nothing but chocolate, which is even better than the cacao bean. And just the sense that he had like literally put them in shipping crates and shipped them home so that they could then work for him and they're sort of like performing for him because they sing all the time. It just made me feel a little uncomfortable. Well, yeah, it's it, it's funny because it reminds me of like this whole dialogue we've been having about like the white savior narrative, but like how the white savior narrative sometimes is not even a white savior narrative. You know, he thinks that he's like taking these people to like a better place, but to do work for him. Right. And also I'm trying to think about, I don't remember how exactly they were portrayed. I think that he kind of, I think that Tim Burton kind of went along with what the book did with, with the backstory. I think so too. But, but yeah, but I think, I think that, you know, that's the, I don't know. It's hard to, I have to wrap my brain around it. My brain is like, sorry, it's also Sunday. So like, I feel like that's a... Yeah, we're having like a very heavy conversation that's surprising about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We're talking about heavy topics on a Sunday afternoon. I understand. I I get it. It's a lot to wrap your head around, especially because at least when I think about all things Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I do think about the movie. And I try as much as I can on the podcast to like separate the book from the movie because I think that, I just think that it's important that we do that as much as possible. But I think the movie is like such like a cultural icon maybe even more so than the book in this case so it's like hard to separate them and it's hard for me because the movie looms so much larger than the book in my own childhood and I guess I just feel like the book's portrayal of these 
these people or these, I don't know exactly what we call these Oompa Loompas. Like it just made me feel sad for them. And even the fact that like at every turn throughout the book where we find the kids in these dangerous situations or like, you know, one of the kids is being carted off in some way by the Oompa Loompas. Willy Wonka is like, oh, you know, I tested this invention on the Oompa Loompas and like the Oompa Loompas had this bad reaction or like this bad thing happened to them. So not only has he like imported these people to work for him, but he's also actually testing his products on them before he knows that they're safe. And it just all feels so terrible. And it's so hard because we talk a lot on the show about like this dangerous dance of quote unquote cancel culture. And like, do I want to be the one here saying like cancel the Oompa Loompas, cancel Willy Wonka? Absolutely not because there is like a part of it that's nostalgic which is in itself a tricky word um, and in the movie like I don't necessarily find the Oompa Loompas to be problematic I find them to be like kind of scary and weird but not but, problematic in the book though I think they are it's so funny because I, I actually thinking about this and like if I'd want my children to read it or not I don't have children yet but I, I, I buy books all the time and I'm like mm, like this is for my children yeah. and then sometimes yeah. I'm like oh this I bought this for my children but like would I let them read this and I think that I, I don't think that stop Stopping people from reading this is going to be what's helpful. I think what would be helpful is to have a conversation, an actual dialogue about what the problems are mm-hmm. and why. Like I, 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 I don't know. I'm always here more for I guess conversation to like address issues rather than to like mask them or like shove them away. But yeah, but I, I, but also you, thinking about it, like it's a nost- it's nostalgic to us because it it was like it's also nostalgic to a lot of our parents. But I wonder how the next couple of generations are going to end up feeling about it. And if it will eventually just kind of die out. Yeah. I wonder how many kids of 2019 are finding this book easily. I mean, obviously it's still out there. Like you can buy it easily. I'm sure it's stocked at most bookstores, but I don't know that that means that kids are coming to it before all these other options. I mean, why in middle grade it, they're like such richer categories now than they were when we were growing up. I remember being like so taken with the fact that Roald Dahl had this insanely big backlist. Like there were so many books right on his shelf that I could read and I was hungry to read everything I could. But kids today don't necessarily have that problem. And not to say that it's a problem for them to read Roald Dahl. Like you said, I think there's always room for conversation. And these are like beloved to so many people. And there's an imagination and a creativity about Roald Dahl that I think is really special and appealing. So I I like, like you, I don't necessarily think that I wouldn't let my kids read this book. But I just... I wonder if it's sort of like falling lower on kids' lists as they're having all these other choices. I wonder if, because there's not, there's not, I can't, I don't know, I don't read a lot of children's books anymore, but I haven't seen a, a major like fantasy, I guess that like Harry Potter, no, even then, I don't know. Like, what is the equivalent to this now? Well, I just read Nevermore, and I don't get to read a lot of new or YA or middle grade because when I'm not reading old books for the podcast, I'm trying to read like grown up books, um, which happens all too rarely sometimes. Um, but I just read Nevermore because we did New Reads November on the podcast, and I would say that there's some similarities only sort of in like the inventiveness of the world and like the physical items in the world that are really cool. Like, I think one of the things that Dahl does so well is he like designs these inventions and he was an inventor in real life one of the things that I found that was really interesting when I was researching was that he actually helped engineer um, a valve for like a shunt because his son was in like a car accident when he was a baby and he had a shunt put in his brain but it wasn't draining properly so Dahl actually worked with a doctor and an engineer to invent a valve to put in his son's shunt so that his brain would be properly drained so he actually knew how to invent stuff and I think he does that really well 
in most of his books, especially Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I mean, it's full of inventions, and you see some of that in Nevermore. I guess there's a little bit of that in Harry Potter, but I feel like the inventiveness of Harry Potter is a little bit more like, it's, it just feels so much bigger picture. I mean, everything is so inventive. I feel like doll books really shine in terms of like there being these details that are so well thought out and well planned and like engineered in some way. No, that's true. Also, I don't know if you thought about this at all, but I guess that I've become like so much more, especially in the past year, I've been trying to eat healthier. And so see, hearing so much about all this candy, I was like, this is not healthy. Like, I think I was kind of overwhelmed at one point whenever I was just thinking, like, this is the diet that he's going to have for the rest of his life. Yeah, that's not a great idea, Charlie. No. <laughs> if you like, want to live long, like, don't do this to yourself. Back to the Oompa Loompas, like, the idea that all they would have is chocolate with, like, sugar. And I was, like, I clearly was thinking too deeply about this because I was, like, they are going to get cancer from, like, eating too much sugar. Like, it's going to just fester inside their bodies and they're going to be, like, bloated. And I got, like, really concerned about it. And I was, like, a real, I, I don't know. I got kind of emotional. And I was, like, I hope they're going to be okay. And then I was, like, this is a book I need to simmer down we just want to save the Oompa Loompas yeah but like also like I don't want to save them the way that like we want to save them in an appropriate way by empowering them to make their own decisions yes that's the best way to put it but even you know also I know that children are like awful and snotty sometimes but like I guess that like there was some at some points I just wanted to be like I need more of a backstory on these other children because I need to know like why they're so awful like yeah Let's talk about the other kids because the second half of the book, like we talked about, is sort of just like full of these characters making their way through the factory. Um, And it's the same characters that we see in the movie, which is nice. Another fun fact about the original versions of this book, the original draft that Dahl wrote, there are actually nine kids. Um, So he wanted to have more kids. And then people think that there might be like an even earlier version somewhere where there were 15. Um, And he realized that it was just unmanageable, especially like seeing how short the book is now. I can't imagine there being more kids. No. So first there's Augustus Gloop, and he is problematic in some ways too. And I I think what was really interesting about him is that I sort of walked into the book knowing that I was going to be uncomfortable about the fat shaming in this book and the Mm -hmm. narrative about weight. And I also couldn't stop thinking about the fact that like we're sending such mixed messages or Roald Dahl maybe was sending such mixed messages by being like the candy factory is the ultimate place. Sort of like what you were saying, like, wouldn't it be the best thing ever if the only thing you had to eat was chocolate, but also like don't eat too much of it because then you're going to get fat like Augustus Gloop and his parents. And then you're going to look really silly. And that's so confusing for kids. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, like, I hadn't even thought about it like that, but I remember, because I, I was very heavy as a child, like, very, like I was very, like, Augustus Gloopish from, like, 9 to 13. Okay. And I ate, I ate candy nonstop, and that was most of what I ate. And it's funny because, you know, people gave me candy all the time because I was a child, but then they'd be like, he needs to, like, lay off food. And, like, they, you're right about that. Oh revelation like we're having a therapy session now no but yeah but i think you're right and also um i don't like i don't like that that's his bad trait is that he's he's just overweight or like yeah i mean i think the overall message that i like tried to think about as i was synthesizing everything is like roald dahl seems to be trying to put this premium or this like inherent value on self-control and he seems to be trying to make this like general warning against gluttony of all kinds Mm -hmm. um, and sort of overindulgence and I think that there's like maybe a way to do that without sort of shitting on people's physical appearances I mean that's just not 
the way that we as 2019 adults would want our children or the children that we know to learn messages about their bodies and about how to take care of themselves and even about how to like think about food. Um, And it's not just Augustus Gloop, like his parents are noted as being overweight. I think there are a couple of other parents because Charlie is the only kid who only has one guest with him. He has Grandpa Mm. Joe. By the way, I still don't know why he didn't get to bring, like, his dad. It was weird to me that his dad was like, I don't need to go either. It would have been actually really cool if the three generations went. But all the other kids have two parents. And I think there were at least two or three other maybe moms who were noted as being heavy. And it just made me so mad that, like, at every point that Roald Dahl could have pointed out that somebody was overweight, he did. And you do see this in Matilda as well. And I think maybe James and the Giant Peach. I think it was part of like a thing of the time which isn't to say that it's any better but I think that maybe it was sort of like an easy strategy for authors of the time to be like oh I'm just gonna explain to you that this person is bad by telling you that they're fat which is bad I mean again I'm gonna say it it's terrible and I think it's like such a cheap way to like develop your characters but it feels so much more complicated in this book because it's a book about food and about food that is not necessarily good for you and food that's not going to lend itself to keeping you trim or healthy and any of those things so I don't know I mean I've read a lot of older books for the podcast where the messages about food and weight are sticky but this just made me feel extra weird because of the mixed messages that are going on no yeah well it's funny i at one point i think maybe it's the cashier or something or like the guy at the candy store who like it wherever he was at when he bought buys the when charlie buys the chocolate bar it does describe him like in a very like disgusted way like it's like it's almost like roald dahl was just like very not here for the look of any of these characters who are like overweight yeah and i I, at one point i was thinking i was like i hope no one would ever think that about me like i would hope that no one would ever describe me in these ways i don't know i think you can describe someone as being heavier without being like so malicious in some ways about it like it feels very fat phobic it does yeah that's really yeah so i wanted to read um Sorry for any page-turning listeners, but obviously one of the hallmarks of the Oompa Loompas is that every time one of the kids, like, falls into a chocolate river, as Augustus Gloop does, or does any of the other silly things that the other kids do to then get removed from this tour, they carry them off and they sing a song. And the songs in the book aren't the same as the songs from the movie, but I did highlight them because I feel like this is sort of, like, the quote-unquote moral imperative that Roald Dahl is trying to express. So I pulled out a couple of quotes from each. Um, so I'll read maybe part of the Augustus Gloop one. They call him a great big greedy nincompoop. Um, they refer to him as a pig, which is gross. They say, but this revolting boy, of course, was so unutterably vile, so greedy, foul, and infantile, he left a most disgusting taste inside our mouths, and so in haste. He will be quite changed from what he's been when he goes through the fudge machine. They are going to boil him until they're absolutely sure that all the greed and all the gall is boiled away for once and all. It's so mean, especially when I pull out chunks of it rather than reading the whole thing through. It's so mean. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to think that, so the Oompa Loompas, I guess, in a way, they're kind of supposed to be like this moral compass for us. Yeah. Which I think is interesting just in how they're like, in how they're depicted versus like what their intentions are in the story. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but like, I, I think it's interesting that like Roald Dahl, like in his mind, he thought that it, like the moral was that, I don't know, just that you had, I don't know how he chose to, how he chose to, what am I looking for? Maybe how to like impart maybe the blame a little bit. Like where did yeah. the problem start? I think he does, he tries a little bit to sort of spread the blame around by like involving the parents. Mm-hmm. 
which I think is useful, but a kid isn't going to understand that. Like, as an adult, I can read this book and be like, I feel like Roald Dahl is also convicting the parents to some degree on almost all of these situations by being like, okay, like, yes, it's unfortunate that Augustus Gloop can't control himself when he sees candy and chocolate, but really the problem started because his parents are giving him everything that he wants. So I I know that as a 29-year-old person, but I don't think that a kid reader is going to be able to rationalize that. And instead, it's just going to be like, oh, no, this kid eats too much and therefore he's vile because the Oompa Loompas said he is. Yeah, and... And it's funny too because, like, what now that you've mentioned, like, you know, the, the way that it describes Augustus, I feel like it does describe everyone of the other kids very physically unattractive mm-hmm. ways. I guess that also, like, I was kind of a bratty as a child sometimes, and so like I'm really defensive towards like bratty children. I'm like, well, they might have had something going on. Like, don't attack them. Fair. I mean, true. That's true. I think I don't have as many bad things to say about Violet Beauregard, for instance, who's our next victim of the factory. So Augustus Gloop has been taken away to like maybe be made into fudge or something. Violet Beauregard, of course, is the gum chewer. And I thought it was weird. Like, why is it so bad to chew gum, especially in a candy factory? And actually, Mike TV points that out to Willy Wonka at one point. Mike TV is sort of the voice of reason in a lot of moments, which is why Willy Wonka is like, I'm sorry, are you mumbling? He has no time for Mike TV because Willy Wonka is sort of like being like, I don't know why anybody needs to chew gum all the time. And Mike is like, um, if you hate gum so much, then why do you make it in your factory? Um, so Violet's whole storyline is that she tries this gum that Wonka has produced that sort of gives you the satisfaction and the taste of a full meal and I guess fills you. So I was like, oh, maybe some social good being done by the Wonkas. Like, you can have some gum and it'll fill you as if you've had a full meal. Like, that could be good for people who are hungry. Um, but it's not quite ready to be eaten because it's, like, destroyed in Oompa Loompa to some extent. Again, like, testing on Oompa Loompas feels really unfair. Violet loves gum so much that she can't help herself and she takes the gum and blows up into a giant blueberry because the blueberry pie portion of the gum meal is not like safe. I I don't really get what the moral imperative was on this one. Um, I did mark, I did mark the Oompa Loompa song. I'll just see if it's any clearer to me now. The Oompa Loompas say there's almost nothing worse to see than some repulsive little bum who's always chewing, chewing gum. And then they tell this whole story about some other woman who was obsessed with chewing gum and ends up in a sanatorium. Um, Again, problematic. So they basically are just saying like, it's gross to chew a lot of gum. I don't really see what the problem is here or why she needs to be turned into a giant blueberry and then taken to a juicing room. But that's what happens to Violet. It's funny to me because when you look at Violet, she's kind of like a role model for like, I mean, like a little bit feminist kind of like Mm -hmm. in some ways. I mean, she's like, she really, she's going after her dreams and she is very committed. And, you know, I think that if someone else had maybe written that story, I don't know if they would have given her such a nasty little like look I, I i mean she's i don't know i just i admire her ambition but and it's it's funny because i was just talking i read east of eden recently with my local bookstore and i was talking about how the main villain of that kathy ames how i don't think she would have been written as a villain either in today's time or if it was written by a woman and i think that i noticed this a lot especially in like books from the 50s and 60s is that women who have ambition are always written like almost more villainous mm-hmm. and i'm like y'all Leave these women alone. Yeah, leave Violet alone. She just wants to win or she just wants to set some records for chewing gum. I mean, come like that is literally so innocent. Sure, she's a little bit like showboaty, but that's fine. She actually could have been a great spokesperson for Wonka. Like you're really missing an opportunity here, dude. I think so. I mean, of course, like it's like of course he's going to choose like the poor white boy, like ugh. objectively I think that like Violet and Mike TV are much less 
grading than Augustus and Veruca. Although Augustus didn't really do anything wrong. He just is like greedy and doesn't pay attention to the instructions that are given to him. But like, I guess I sort of at least understand maybe a little bit what he was trying to say. I think he went about it all wrong. I think there is always room to be like, it's better to be more careful about what you're eating. Like you don't want to make yourself sick. I mean, that is a fair point if it's made in the right way. It obviously was made in entirely the wrong way here. I don't see that there's any, like, real reason to harp on kids who are chewing too much gum. I also don't... I don't know. I just... I think Violet, like, maybe was the least problematic of the other kids. Veruca is probably the most, and she's up next. Veruca's storyline is different in the book than it is in the movie, because in the movie, of course, there's, like, the geese laying golden eggs, and she, like, I don't care how I want it now. Everybody loves to hear me sing on the podcast. In the book, there's this, like, room of squirrels, which I really loved the visual of, and that's, I think, what they did in the 2005 movie, right? Like, there's all of these squirrels in a room cracking walnuts. Mm-hmm. Veruca decides that she must have one of these squirrels, which I'm like, why do you care? If, why do you need to have a squirrel to crack your walnuts for you? It's so ridiculous. You know, it is. But, like, listen, I justify so much about people's bad behavior in books. I was like, you know what? Like, maybe her, like, fingers are numb or something. Like, maybe it's hard. Like, I justify so much. But, like, also, I wanted a squirrel. So I was like, I feel you. I do find squirrels to be very cute. And I liked thinking about the squirrels doing this kind of work. Although, again, why are we employing squirrels? Maybe not employing them. Are they getting paid? That's another thing. Yeah. You know, you think about it, like, it's so funny because they're, like, saying, you know, oh, yeah, all the spies are the reason why Wonka, like, got rid of everyone. But I'm like, well, but you're also saving a lot of money about all these other people and, like, Squirrels. animals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> really weird. So Veruca, like, tries to get, I mean, she, she grabs the squirrel. I guess that's more the problem. It's not that she wants a squirrel. Like, her dad probably could have afforded a squirrel for her when they got home. But she just tries to, like, steal one of Wonka's squirrels and the squirrels attack her and then deem her as a bad nut. Let me read a bit of what the Oompa Loompas have to say about this. Again, sorry for the page turning. The parents actually get taken away on this one, too, because they're, like, looking for her in the garbage chute. And so they also disappear. The Oompa Loompas say, and this is the price she has to pay for going so very far astray. But now, my dears, we think you might be wondering, is it really right that every single bit of blame and all the scolding and the shame should fall upon Veruca Salt? Is she the only one at fault? For though she spoils, and dreadfully so, a girl can't spoil herself, you know. Who spoiled her then? Ah, who indeed? So yeah, that's another one where it's very clear that Roald Dahl is like, this is all on the parents. I don't think that's a thing that a kid can absorb, though. No. Well, and also, I don't know. It's so funny because thinking about, like, little, like, rhymes and stuff, like, stuff like that, or, like, Harry, the sorting hat in Harry Potter, like, you don't really pick up on that stuff. I don't feel like as much when you're younger. Like, I don't know. Like, it's, like, one of those things where, like, you hear it in your head and you think it's a fun rhyme, but you're not picking up full context mm-hmm. if you're, like, you know, seven, eight, nine years old. But I do think, I do agree that it was the parents. I'm just, I'm all here for Veruca's salt. That's my problem. I'm telling you. I'm, like, I'm just, like, all here for all these bad children. But I feel bad for her because I'm, like, well, you're, like, your parents are setting you up for failure. Like, Yeah, I mean, in this case, it's really not her fault. Yeah. It's really not her fault. It's not any of the kids' faults. But I just think in, in this case, there's a much finer point placed on the fact that it's, like, very much not her fault. In my mind, I kept wondering in my mind, like, I wonder if any of these kids had been, like, evaluated, if they might have, like, any other kind of, like, other needs. Like, if, if, if anyone had, like, I don't know, I was like, well, does somebody have ADHD? Does somebody have depression? Like, is there some reason why, like, these people need, you know... I was thinking a lot, too, way too much about these people's, like, other lives outside of the story, like... I agree. Like, More context is oh, would have been helpful. Like, what's their life like at home? Why are they the way they are? Mm-hmm. And then 
there's Mike TV, who I just find to be a hilarious character, um, both in the movie and in the book. The kid loves TV. I mean, he just does. And a lot of us do. Even the readers among us, we love TV. He wants to do nothing but watch TV. And his storyline is they end up in this, like, actually, I would think at at the time when this book was written, I would think this was like a very high-tech idea where Wonka is actually trying to transport chocolate via television. And it's worth noting that's still not something that we figured out how to do. But Mike TV decides to sort of like stand in for this chocolate and see if he too can be transported to a television. And then he does it successfully, but he is like emerging as this like tiny little TV-sized boy who then needs to be stretched into his normal size. And similar to the gum-chewing thing, I'm like, I, I get that maybe it's not the most attractive quality to be a kid that can do nothing but watch TV. But like, does there have to be a moral imperative around it? I just, I don't think so. And then of course the Oompa Loompa speech is very much about like the value of books, which, you know, I, I love as a reader, but again, like Oompa Loompas, Willy Wonka, not your job to dictate. They say, so please, oh please, we beg, we pray, go throw your TV set away. And in its place, you can install a lovely bookshelf on the wall, then fill the shelves with lots of books, ignoring all the dirty looks. I actually think I may have tweeted part of this at some point. Um, the screams and yells, the bites and kicks, and children hitting you with sticks. Fear not because we promise you that in about a week or two of having nothing else to do, they'll now begin to feel the need of having something good to read. So, yeah, I mean, there's Roald Dahl being like, books are great, and they are great. But I just, I don't think it was necessary for them to, like, turn him into a minuscule version of himself and then stretch him. That's just right. not, that's not a fair punishment for liking television. I wonder if this had been, if this story, if someone had wrote, written it now, I wonder what would have been considered, like if each of the child, child's like vices, like I wonder what would be considered that now because, because TV hadn't been out too long when the book was written. I don't think, I mean. Probably not, at least not in like such an accessible way. Right. And so I wonder if in that way he was probably thinking like, because it's so new. Cause I mean, I remember like my grandma told me about whenever they got a TV and like she was freaking out because she was like, oh no, it's going to like take over our lives. And I guess in some way it might have taken over like a little bit, but I don't think to the extent that he probably thought. I don't know. In my head, I just, I'm like, entertainment, it's fine. Like, just do what you're going to do. Yeah. Who could, well, maybe he's watching PBS also. Maybe he's watching educational television. Yeah. Not like that, that it matters. You know, people can watch what they want to watch. Yeah. No judgment. No judgment. And then, of course, we're left with Charlie, Charlie Bucket and Grandpa Joe. And the interesting thing that I noted was that in the movie, Charlie and Grandpa Joe do sort of stray for a second when they go try the fizzy lifting drink. And so Charlie is not quite so perfect because the whole idea here is that, like, Willy Wonka is testing all the kids to see who can exercise self-control and who can follow his directions and who's, like, sort of the best behaved and most equipped to take over his factory. And in the movie, Charlie is not this, like, perfect angel. He's, like, 90% perfect. In the book, Charlie literally does nothing wrong. I mean, in the book, Charlie barely even talks. We don't know anything about Charlie once he enters the factory. And I thought that it was kind of worth noting that, like, at least in the movie, they're like, okay, we need to give this guy a little bit of a personality and, like, show that maybe he's down to enjoy this experience more than just following along on the tour. In the book, he just, like, kind of follows everybody around. And then at the end, I will say that this is kind of a fun twist ending if you're a kid and you don't know what's coming. The fact that he's the one left and Willy Wonka is like, and because you were the best behaved, you get to take over my factory. That is a fun ending, but... I, he was just like a little too squeaky clean in the book for me. No, I agree. Well, that's the thing. I think the it's funny that you say that because I think the one thing that I remember so specifically about the original movie is him and Grandpa Joe going to do the whole fizzy lifting drinks and then 
Wonka like getting really angry at that point at the end. It was scary. He's like, you lose. It's like, oh, okay, sorry. And then it's in the end. He gets the factory, but he at least was tested a little bit. He just kind of, it's a little too easy for him in the book. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember. It's hard to remember. Like, I haven't seen the movies in so long, but it's just, I, I don't know. I, I think it's really interesting that that was all the changes that were made. I think that I, I do wonder like why, why they made certain changes and not others sometimes in adaptations. But now, now all I'm thinking about is like the parents, because like yeah, because like the the dad's not there. I don't know. I also think maybe in 1971, like they're like, oh, we have cool technology and we can make it look like they're flying. So they probably just wanted to like flex a little bit with that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I I don't know. I what was your overall thoughts of it? So I was going to ask you the same. So let's talk about it on the whole. Like, do we think that? rereading it as adults like has it held up for us or has it been ruined in some way I'll say that it did not hold up for me and I'm fine to say that because I loved the movie growing up but this book was not like super precious to me so it's easy for me to be like I didn't love it as an adult I do feel like we're going to break a lot of hearts with all of this intel about what's really going on in the book from an adult perspective because there are people that really do hold this book close to their heart for me it's very easy to say like no I don't really get it anymore what do you think it's funny because I I thought I was going to just like swoon head over heels because I really did love this book when I, cause I, I remember reading it during class in fourth grade at one point, cause I'd read it multiple times when I was a kid and then to read it now and to just like not really be mystified in any way. And then, and really in some ways to kind of like be disappointed by re- recognizing like a lot of the problematic stuff. Like I was like, eh, I could, I could take or leave it. I do love the imagination. Like I love the details that Roald Dahl includes throughout the book. Like the descriptions of all the things that are going on at the factory and like the candies that he's making, that stuff's still fun to read and it holds up and I think always will hold up. But the rest of it, I think just offers some really interesting conversational fodder and I'm glad we got to talk about it. Oh yeah. What else have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? doesn't have to be YA or middle grade. It can be whatever you've been really enjoying lately. Okay, so I'll recommend two because I'm currently reading one. It's The Logger Queen of Minnesota by J. Ryan Straddle. Oh, he's the author of Kitchens of the Great Midwest. Yes, yeah. and I loved that book. And I, so I'm reading his newest one right now. It is, and I'm only halfway through, but it is very delightful. And then there's a memoir that came out back in April, I think. It's called The Light Years by Chris Rush. And it is just so well written so beautiful it's a he's he's an artist and it's about him growing up in the starting in the 60s and he he's gay and he ends up getting into like drugs and stuff and it's just but it's so good and i can't stop raving about it oh and one more just because she's it's such a good book and she's so kind is Nama by Sarah Blake and it's a retelling of Noah's art from the uh Noah's wife's perspective oh interesting and it is fantastic and asks a lot of really interesting questions. And at one point, it even describes the Great Flood as a massacre, which I had just never thought of, of that like description in my head before. And when I read it, I was like just devastated. So I think that those are, yeah, just those would be what I'd recommend right now. Those sound great. I'll include links to all of those in the show notes for this episode. Readers, if you're building your new 2020 TBR, you just got three new ones to add. Thanks to Hunter. Um, I will also include a link to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for those who do want to revisit. We would love to hear your thoughts. If you agree with us, if you are still holding close to your heart, please let us know. Hunter, this was so fun. I will, of course, include links to Shelf by Shelf as well in the show notes. If you guys aren't following Hunter on Shelf by Shelf, 
not sure what you're waiting for. Um, go <laughs> learn more about what he's doing over there and read his reviews. I have loved following you on Instagram and beyond. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I hope you have a, a good, maybe more relaxing rest of your Sunday. You too. And thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>